It's good to see you all this morning. Y'all are saying, man, he's back up there. Well, praise God. We have already this morning through the uh, reading of God's Word and to uh, sing praises. We've already had church this morning. We could almost say, uh, let's pray and pack it up and go home. But we come to church not just for the singing or the fellowship. But we come to church to hear from God's Word. Uh, God's Word it admonishes and corrects us believers and also leads the lost to the cross, as just as we uh, were singing about. Uh, I'd like to start off this morning by asking you a couple questions, and these are rhetorical questions, uh, so there's no need to answer because we, we know the answer to these um, questions. First one, who makes mistakes? And well, Pete, that's pretty easy. Everybody makes mistakes. We all make mistakes, right? Here's another question. Have you ever made a mistake? And you go, yeah, Pete, that's another one I've... I've made a mistake. We all have made mistakes. Perhaps there's mistakes that we've made that, as we know, mistakes that we make have consequences. Do they not? Yeah. Some mistakes we make have smaller consequences. It may be the consequence of being embarrassed. Uh, If you have the mistake of having a southern accent, you may suffer that. Someone told me this morning, well, just your voice is the icebreaker. I don't know... If that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I will take it this morning as a compliment from a friend. Other mistakes we make have larger consequences. Some mistakes, however, the minimal amount of consequences that we have uh, from them, they can be quite humorous. A mistake can be quite funny. For example, a mistake that we find in church bulletins, and we've all seen those, or have you seen the little things? You can say, well, on this church sign, they had this like, Church bulletin blooper. A couple I'd like for you to read this morning is, and these are examples of mistakes. In a church bulletin, the parishioners read this one Sunday morning, don't let worry kill you, let the church help. <laughs> that was a mistake. Not that our church have mistakes in our bulletins. Here's another one. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. And one more, this is, you know, uh, if Tara Edwards were here this morning, she's traveling back with the, uh, from, with the volleyball team from Valdez. She would say, you know, and, and most of us know this, that a, a, a well-placed comma can make the difference in a sentence. Well, here's one. Bertha Belch, a missionary from Africa, will be speaking in tonight's service. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. (laughs) So some mistakes can be humorous with limited consequences. But however, there are some mistakes that are not humorous. Some mistakes, even though they may be quite simple, can have consequences emotionally, physically, and even spiritually, and leave those scars and our mistakes also affect or affect other people around us. The things that we say, the things that we do have an effect not just on us, but on those around us. And speaking of mistakes, since we, we are all of one accord this morning saying, yeah, we've made mistakes, I thought about, well, what would be a good mistake for me to use as a personal illustration as a mistake? And I pondered that, and I, I took some time thinking about not that I was trying to find a mistake. I've made many. But which one would illustrate 
what we're going to talk about somewhat in the text. And I said, well, I like hiking. And so a mistake that I, I made in hiking, and, and everybody in this room probably has hiked at one point uh, or another in their life, especially if you live in Alaska. Well, this incident happened last spring. And last spring it was a beautiful Saturday. Uh, the weather was somewhat like we've had the last couple of days. Beautiful blue sky. The temperature was just great. You know, that feeling of a spring day that when you walk out, it just lifts your soul up and you just feel good about being outside. So I told my wife, I said, look, I'm going to go on a hike. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't tell her exactly where I was going because I really didn't have an idea exactly where I was going. So I was, I got in my truck and I took off. I said, this is what I'll do. I'll go out and uh, decide to follow some sheep trails. Those of you who have hiked with me, I'm not going to say had the privilege of, but if you've hiked with me, I have a tendency to go off the trail and try to explore places where I think no man has ever been. Sometimes that's disappointing because you find stuff like GPS devices. You find a penny and you go like, who brought a penny up here? Why would they do this for my day? So on this particular day, I decided to follow some sheep trails. And if you've ever followed sheep trails, whether you, if you're hunting sheep or you just like to do things like that, they're remarkable. You can really follow these sheep trails, and they're like these sheep highways. They go all up the side of the mountains, and they're really neat because you can go higher and you can go farther than you thought you could get up a side of a mountain on these sheep trails. They're everywhere. So I'm, ex- I'm inspired. I'm going like, a, I'm going to de-stress. I'm going to get along. I'm, I'm by myself. Uh, my wife really had no idea where I was at. I said, I'll be okay. So I get up there, and I'm, I'm, I'm close about 3,000 foot up, and, and I see there's tons of sheep up there this day. So I'm able to sneak up and even take a video of some sheep, and I was probably 10 feet from these sheep. They saw me, they took off, and they're just on their little sheep highways just running away. And I, I was just saying, man, this is so neat. So then it came time for me to, to go down. And going down is always a little more difficult for me because I have a fear of heights. And you go, why do you do that then? I don't know, because it's there. So going down, I'm, I'm a little more cautious about going down. So as I'm following these sheep trails down, there's, they're everywhere. So And everything kind of looks the same when you get up there. So as I'm going down, I'm thinking this is the right trail, but I'm not sure because there was several paths to choose from. So then I get myself in a situation that I had not planned to be in nor prepared myself to be in. I had come down off this sheep, one sheep trail. Now I'm in this position where there's, I'm on this ledge and I cannot get back up to go where I was at. So now there's only one way down is down. So there's a crevasse, a vertical crevasse I call it in a rock. It was shaped like a V. And I had just purchased this brand new Osprey 24-liter backpack. That's $125. You, you hike, you know, oh, Osprey, he's got a good backpack. Maybe not a good decision, but a good backpack. <laughs> so I'll go, okay, what do I got to do how to get down? So I'm going to go down this crevasse. And so I'll wedge myself in between the sides of that crevasse, and I'm going down. As I'm going down, this vertical crevasse gets shallower and shallower to the point where I'm I'm hanging out. My chest is hanging out, exposed, and I'm thinking, okay, this is not a good idea. This is a mistake. 
So then I go, I'll try to go back up, but I couldn't go back up because the back of my backpack was catching on a rock that was behind me. And I thought, well, maybe if I arch my back and go up, that was not a good idea. So there I'm stuck, if you will, between heaven and earth. There's no one around me because I'm by myself. And I start to pray, say, Lord, if you just get me out of this situation, I'll never make this same mistake again. Now, before we go any further in the text, I want to I make something really clear that we've been talking about mistakes. What we're going to talk about now is sin because there's a big difference. Lot of, lots of times as Christians, we want to hide behind that word mistake. Yeah, I've, I've made some mistakes. God's Word never tells us to confess our mistakes and He will forgive us. God's Word says that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgiveness. So I want to make that clear that we're not going to be talking about a mistake in this text this morning. We're going to be talking about sin. A mistake is an action or a judgment that is misguided or wrong. Like turning left when I should have turned right. Maybe on a math test when I added two and two together and it came out to be five instead of four. Those are mistakes. But sin is the deliberate, willful breaking of God's commandments. So I want to make clear this morning that there is a big difference between making a mistake and sinning. When we sin, God's Word tells us that we willfully break God's commandments. We willfully break the law of God. This morning, we want to look into Second um, Samuel chapter 11. And uh, I'm noticed for... Um, I do things that's unprecedented. And this morning, we're going to read the whole chapter. And you go, oh, my... We're going to read the whole chapter? Yes. But I think we need to read the whole chapter so we can see and we can feel the heaviness of this moment in this narrative passage that I think this morning will be a great benefit to all of us as believers, and perhaps you're not a believer and you're sitting here this morning, I think it will be a great benefit for you as well. But before we get into to the text and read, this is a familiar text. And this is the text about David's sin with Bathsheba, not just his sin of adultery, but also his sin of murder. For you know, because you've read the story, that David murdered Uriah the Hittite. Matter of fact, one of his mighty men to hide his sin, to cover his sin. So what do we know about David? Well, a short resume of King David is that he was the youngest son of Jesse. He was a shepherd. The Bible tells us he, he even killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. He defeated Goliath as a youth with just a slingshot. He was a mighty, mighty warrior. You're familiar with the passage that the ladies would sing songs about the heroes, and they sang a song that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David was a mighty, mighty warrior. He was God's choice for Israel's king chosen over Saul. He defeated Israel's enemies. He, he captured Jerusalem. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. He wrote over half of the Psalms that we have in our Bible God also made an unconditional covenant with David that his line, his throne would continue. And we know that as the messianic promise that Christ himself would come through the lineage of David. 
Peter, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 22, said that David was a man after God's own heart. So I want us to think about that. What is a man after God's own heart? You know, actually, it's about like what we are if we're here this morning. David loved God. I mean, loved God. Probably like most of you. He longed to please God. He wanted to do what was right. We read in the Psalms, we can resonate what David wrote because it hit home. It hits home. He talks about his ups and downs and the way his life was. Everybody's after me. Oh, God, please forgive me. God, we resonate with that because we're just like David. We love God. We don't want to sin against God. We wind up doing those things. So then how could a man like David, a man like you and I who loved God, who wanted to please God, do such a horrible, horrible thing? Even though this incident in God's Word, we see it happen kind of like that, it didn't just happen in a day. There was things leading up to this incident, to David's sin. And none of our sins really put us in the hole just like that. If you stop and think about it, it's, it's a process. And we willfully put ourselves in that crucible, in that process. And the outcome is never, never good. Before we read our text, I want us to pray. So if you bow your head and let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, Lord Jesus, and we look at this, this heavy text from 2 Samuel, Lord Jesus, in regards to David. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see ourselves in this. Lord, help us to evaluate our hearts. And I pray, God, that you will remove me now. I pray, God, you'll, you'll speak through me, speak to me as well. Lord, let the word of God, as powerful and, and, and awesome that it is, speak to our hearts. Lord, help us, Lord Jesus, to have a contrite and a broken heart this morning in regard to our sin. Pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you as our personal Savior, God, that today would be the day that they come to know you as our personal Savior. We ask these sayings in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll read the whole chapter. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. And how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, 
David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There's three things we want to look at this morning. That was long. Thank you for paying attention. But I think we'll, as reading that, we'll, we'll sense the heaviness that this text has in it. There's three things that we want to look at this morning is how in the world did David, a man like you and I, a man after God's own heart, put himself in this situation? It wasn't a mistake. It was... David's willful sin. The first thing we want to look at what he did, David abdicated his responsibilities. If you look in verse 1, chapter 11, it says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. The writer of this text is making a contrast here, saying at this time of year, which was the time that wars took place back during that time, because it was a time when the barley and the wheat was growing, you could like send a whole group of guys into battle, and you'd have food along the way. 
So at a time when kings were supposed to lead their armies in the battle, the Bible tells us that David didn't go. David stayed in Jerusalem. The definition of abdicate in regards to uh, a monarchy, a king or a queen, it has the meaning of renouncing one's throne, failure to fulfill or undertake responsibility or duty. David was the spiritual leader. He was the, the, the king of Israel, God's chosen people. He had a responsibility to uphold the godly responsibilities that God had bestowed upon him. Remember, his predecessor, Saul, failed in that category. We see now David himself now is abdicating his God-given responsibilities. Perhaps he said, man, you know, I've got such a resume, uh, I'm just kind of tired. I think I'll just lay low on this one. Uh, No one's going to notice. I mean, I've got competent generals who can take care of this. I really don't need to be there. I'm just going to sit this one out just this one time. Matter of fact, he had done this previously with no consequences, so he thought. And remember this, not doing always leads to doing. Let me say that again. Not doing always leads to doing. What that means is when you stop doing something, when we stop doing something, we always fill it with something else. You think? Let that sink in. When we stop doing something, we always fill it with something else. Galatians 6, 9, in regards to our condition is like, well, I'm just, I'm just tired. I don't, I don't want to uh, do the things I know I should do. And those things come easily. This first step that David took was one of those steps that all of us have a tendency to take because we get tired. Well, you know, I'll just, I'll just read my Bible later on. Or, I'm, man, I'm just really tired. I know I'm going to be stepping on toes. I don't want to go to church this morning. I, I'm just... I've taught for years. I just want to. I just don't want to do it. There's other people who can do that. You know, God has given us responsibilities because He's gifted us, and He's provided for us the opportunity to share the gospel, to to work within the body of Christ, to uplift other believers. So, David didn't make a mistake here. David willfully chose to abdicate. His God-given responsibilities. So as Christians, what are our responsibilities as Christians? What does God's Word say about that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and Paul was talking about the resurrection of our bodies. He said, if you really believe, if you truly believe that Christ rose from the dead and that He will resurrect your earthly body, then what should we be doing? What's our responsibility with that knowledge? He wrote this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So this then is the believers, this is our responsibility as believers, is that we're to stand firm in the faith and give ourselves completely to the Lord uncompromisingly as the Lord has gifted us and leads us in this life. So when we get to the place where I stop reading my Bible, I stop regularly attending church, I stop doing those things that God has said I'm supposed to do as a believer, I willfully put myself on a path that eventually will lead to somewhere I don't want 
to be. Prime examples, men in our culture today, men in our churches today, have we abdicated our responsibility to be the godly leaders of our home? How do we lead our family, men? Are we leading it the way that God's word says we're supposed to lead it? Or have we abdicated those responsibilities and given them to someone else? Have we given them to the Christian school? Have we given those responsibilities to the Sunday school teachers? Have we abdicated our responsibility? Have we abdicated our responsibility to be the husband that God has called us to be? Moms, wives, have you abdicated your responsibility to be the helpmeet for the man that God's put in your life as your husband? And parents together, have we abdicated our responsibility to grow up our children in the, in the nurture and the abnomination of the Lord? Have we just like abandoned that? Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from that. Have we abdicated that responsibility? So, just truth be told, if we have abdicated our responsibilities, and especially the responsibilities that we have with our children, what do we expect our children to be like? What do we expect our children to become? Like us? Now, we're not just talking about one step, but here it is. The first step that you take in abdicating your responsibility as a Christian, guess what? That second step becomes easier. The third step becomes easier. And then before you know it, you don't even have to justify in your mind why you're not doing what you're supposed to do. So what do we need to do? We need to stay in the fight. When you're, when you're, when you're down, when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, the thing is not to abdicate my Christian responsibilities. The thing is to gird up and fight. Stay in the fight. Be not weary in well-doing, Paul wrote to the Galatians. Stay in the fight. Stay in the thing that's hard to do because that's going to keep you off the path that you don't want to be on. And remember this, moms, dads, husbands, wives, parents, Sunday school teachers, when we lead, when we stop leading and we fall, we stumble, guess what? Because we're a leader, all those other people are going to fall and stumble over us. The second thing that he did, because he abdicated his responsibilities, and the second step became a lot easier for him to take, was that he isolated himself from accountability. Somebody may have just come in your mind right now. I know somebody just like that. You used to see them in church. You used to see them in your Christian circles. Now they're nowhere to be found. Look in verse 1 through 5. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. David sent these guys away from him. These were these battle-tested veterans, his mighty men. He sent them away from him, and he remained in Jerusalem. So David's now in a place where he can do anything that he wants and there's no accountability. We tend to do that if we abdicate our responsibilities because we don't want to be around those people that will hold us accountable to say, you know what, Pete, that's not right. Pete, you ought not to say that. Pete, you ought not to watch that. Pete, 
We don't want to hang around those people because we're already one. We're, we're being convicted by the Holy Spirit. But when other believers start meddling in what we're doing, that makes things twice as bad, does it not? And then what we, need, we tend to do is we tend to isolate our Christian friends and we tend to substitute with other people who may be, may be Christians, maybe not, but for sure they're not going to hold me accountable in such a way that it gets me right here. Look in verse 3, there was one such person that David wasn't expecting, but David, because of this guy had no influence in David's life at all, David was able just to say whatever. Look in verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one, there was one that said, is, this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Notice here, there was no question. It was just making a statement, a soft sort of bit of accountability saying, hey, I think that she's married. But there was nothing else out of going, you know, that's a sin if you do anything with her. Y'all just get off this rooftop and you just come with me. Let's open up God's word. Let's look at what God's word. None of that. He said, hey, isn't this Uriah the Hittite's wife? It didn't phase David. What did David do? We read the text. David said, go get her. Go get her, boys. He had, that second step now had put him in a spot where he could do whatever he wanted to do, and he's put all his accountability partners away from him. Proverbs 18.1 says this. says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against sound judgment. And Chris, are you sitting here today and perhaps some of your Christian friends, maybe this is the first time you've been to church in a while, maybe some of your Christian friends are wondering, where's he at? Where's she at? Are you MIA? Are you, are you missing an action? And right now, perhaps you've come here looking for some sort of encouragement. Now you feel more miserable than you did when you walked in. Because it's very unsettling and it's very unnerving and uncomfortable to be around people who are strong believers when you're not where you're supposed to be spiritually. The third step that David took or the third sin that he committed was the one that put him really over the top. He distanced himself from the very presence of God. If you look with me in verse 11, this is Uriah speaking. You know, and as we, as we read this, you were probably saying to yourself, wow, Uriah the Hittite was more of a godly person than King David, a man after God's own heart in this incident. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink to lie with my wife? The ark of the covenant for the nation of Israel was the place where God's presence would come down in between the cherubim on the mercy seat. They would take this into battle before them so they would have the presence of God. David was used to doing that. David was used to having the presence of God around his life. But now he sent all this away. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 21 through 22 God gives Moses the instruction of building the Ark of the Covenant and what it was going to be used for. It says this, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark 
And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I shall meet with you, and from the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people. So when David abdicated his responsibility, it became really easy to isolate himself from accountability. Then we lose that accountability. Guess what? That next thing is we don't really want to be around God's people. We don't really want to come to God's house because we really, our heart has become cold and indifferent to the things of God, and we really don't want to hear it. It's like pouring water off a duck's back. You can sit there and you can hear God's commandments, God's warnings. But it's like in James, the man who sees himself in the mirror, and then he leaves, he forgot what manner of man he was. You hear God's word, his commandment, right now it's pressing upon you. Then we'll leave these doors and go our separate ways, and then we forget because our, our hearts have become cold and hard. And we, we show up to church, and we kind of get out as quick as we can because there's people that we used to hang out with that held us accountable, but now we want to get in and get out. And so David's taking these three steps, and we see what happened next. Look in verse 2. It happened. It didn't just happen. There was a process that David willfully put himself through to get where he was at. A man after God's own heart committed adultery. A man after God's own heart who loved God had one of his mighty men murdered. And then he's covering it up. So I want to go back to where we started. There I am. I'm stuck in there. And can't go up. I can't go down. This expensive backpack that on my back is filled with all kind of cool hiking things that cost money. I've got some money vested in that stuff. And if you hike, you know, you want to invest in stuff like that. But here is I had to make a decision. No one there. I can't cry for help because it's just me in between the rocks. At this time, my legs are shaking. I'm holding myself up. You know, and you get in a situation where your adrenaline is pumping up and you can get kind of weak. I had to make a decision. It's either me or my backpack. So I wedge myself in between the crevice and I take it off. And I had second thoughts. I said, maybe I can get out of this without letting this thing go. Because there was another ledge and there was another drop off. And if I drop it, there's a good chance it's going to fall off and I'm never going to get this $125 Osprey backpack back so I had to let it go when I let it go I was then able to get out from this mistake that I had put myself in but remember this was what happened to me was a mistake what happened to David was not a mistake it was a sin now there was consequences to David's sin and there's always consequences to our sins always Big, little, huge, always consequences to our sin. If you read the rest of the account in chapter 12, we'll see that the consequences for David's sin was that the child that was brought into the world because of his sin died. Another thing that happened to David, God told David through Nathan the prophet, 
David, your house is going to be a wreck. His sons tried to kill him to take over the throne. The correct wording is this, or the exact wording said, the sword will never leave your house. So this actually was probably at least nine months, if not more, from the very act of his adultery with Bathsheba. During that time, David was trying to be the leader to get back to doing his God-given responsibilities, and he suffered greatly. The heaviness of hiding sin is horrible. If you would, go with me to uh, Psalm 32. This is one of the Psalms that David wrote in regards to what it was like when he was hiding the sin. Remember now, at least nine months, maybe more, that he was dealing with this. Perhaps you're in that same spot this morning. To look at verses uh, 3 through 4. He says, For when I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David struggled, and it was a hard burden to bear because here it is. He's in the situation. Well, I can't let anybody find out because if someone finds out, then I'm going to be ruined. My life will never be the same. People won't look at me the same. He struggled that. He, he held on to that sin. He didn't confess his sin until Nathan the prophet, a great accountability party, stuck his old bony finger in David's face and said, you're the man. David confessed his sin. And Psalms 51 is what we read earlier, is that confession. But what's really interesting in is that what he says about the person who confesses their sin. I'm going to say this to you, that circumstances are going to come, whether you confess your sin or whether you don't confess your sin. One day, that circumstance will come knocking upon your door. As a believer, how do you want to greet that? Because you're going to have to greet it. How are you going to greet it when you open the door to your circumstances because of your sin? If you've not confessed your sin, you're going to be like, it's going to be, whoa, whoa, it's me, whoa, it's me, whoa, it's me. If you have confessed your sin... Even when those circumstances come, you're going to be able to rejoice in the fact that you have been forgiven of that sin. So perhaps you're here this morning, you go like, uh, well, I want, to be, I want to be forgiven of my sin, but I want the, the consequences to be gone. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but your consequences may not leave you. You may very well... Live with the consequences of your sin. I would much rather live with the consequences of my sin knowing that I've been forgiven of those sins. Because you know what? That burden that people bear because of the consequences of their sin is a lot easier to bear because they know that I've been forgiven. We sang songs about that. 
That's not going to send me to hell. God's forgiven me. And my relationship with God, even though I'm suffering these circumstances, has been made right. And for someone who's suffering circumstances from what they've done, it's a lot easier to accept those and live with those when you know that you have a right relationship with God. I think about the thief on the cross. God didn't take him out of his circumstances, did he not? But he was able to, in the suffering of his circumstance, crucifixion on the cross, rejoice because Jesus said, I'm going to see you in paradise. So perhaps today you're at the point where you've crossed that threshold. Or maybe you're at the point where you're starting to do that first step, abdicating your responsibilities. Caution, warning, don't go down that path. Maybe you've already done that. Now you, you're sitting here this morning and go, oh my, I, I have isolated myself from people who would hold me accountable. accountable. Repent. Ask God to forgive you of your sin. Restore that relationship. Maybe you're here and you're right, fixing to step over the edge of that point where you're fixing to separate yourself from the presence of God. I don't want to have anything to do with God's people. They're a bunch of hypocrites. I'm tired of people telling me what to do, not what to do. Not what to do. Maybe you're there. And like I said, maybe you've already crossed that threshold where you've committed a sin that if someone found out, fill in the blank, everything would be a disaster. Like I said earlier, how are you going to face those consequences when they come knocking? How are you going to greet them? Are you going to greet them with joy in your heart that you've been forgiven like David? And this is what David says in Psalms 32. This is what happens when we as believers confess our sins and God forgives us. Look in Psalms 32 verse 1. It says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered, and he's not talking about us covering it, but it's covered by God, by Christ's blood on the cross. Verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. You know what that means? That means that you're not living a lie. Within your spirit, you're not having to try to deceive people or yourself about where you are in your spiritual walk. So if you've done that, there's hope for you this morning, but you've got to call out. And perhaps maybe there'll be someone who will hold you accountable and say, where have you been? What have you been doing? If God gives you the opportunity, I implore you to repent, to confess, to turn. And in closing, but what about if you're this morning and you're not a believer? Is there any hope for you? Because as a believer, you will continue to sin. You'll just keep doing it. You'll just keep doing it. Perhaps this morning you're thinking, wow, I'm not even a true believer. Is there any hope for me? Well, praise God, there's hope for you as well. God's Word tells us that if we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Perhaps this morning you're wondering, what do I need to do to be saved? It's that simple. When you know, when you, the Holy Spirit in your heart makes you aware that you are lost and you're a sinner, nothing that you can do will merit heaven for you. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. We sang about it. 
How awesome that you have a God that if he's calling you and drawing you this morning, will forgive you of those sins, create a fellowship with him that you've never experienced before, and then you can say, I know for a fact that heaven will be my home when I die.